0: Good evening, thanks so much for coming. I'm Jeremy Brock and uh, I'd like to welcome you to the second in this year's quartet of international screenwriters lectures to be given by the prolifically talented, multidisciplinary filmmaker, Sean Baker. Sean's films include Take Out, Tangerine, and his beautiful, color-startled, Pee into Innocence, The Florida Project. In collaboration with his co-writer, Chris Burgock, Sean produces screenplays of matchless integrity and authenticity, creating a social realism which is both brutally real, yet awash with an incredible humanity. Nobody who's seen the performances in Florida Project can be in any doubt as to the extraordinary vision and veracity at work here.
1: everybody. Is this working? Hello? Hello? Yep. Yeah? Okay. Um, I'd like to thank BAFTA for inviting me to be part of this series. It's quite an honor. Um, so uh, first off, I, I'm, I'm speaking with you tonight, not as a screenwriter, but a screenwriter, director, editor. Um, I've been all three on all of my films and, well, to be clear, a, a co-screenwriter on five of my six films. Um, I bring this up because my screenwriting is actually very interconnected um, with my directing and editing, and so I'm going to be speaking in that way, from basically, from the point of view of all, of all, three, uh, of all three things. Um, so when I write my films, when I co-write my films, um, I feel as if I, I write my films three times. Um, the initial screenplay written in a fairly conventional way. Um, The only thing that may not be standard about that initial screenplay is slightly more screen direction on the page and and sections in which I clearly state that I'll be using a documentary style approach to capturing a moment. So um, these are sometimes paragraphs or little sections in the screenplay that give my actors sample lines, um, but I make it clear that they'll be interacting with pedestrians or non-professionals um, and improvisation will be required for them to, you know, for them. Um, forgive me, this is my first lecture <laughs> ever, <laughs> ever. <laughs> so be patient, be kind. Okay. Um, okay, so then there's a rewrite during production, um, and that happens basically through my direction. Um, this plays out a few different ways. Um, first off, I always encourage improvisation on set, I find it exciting. And uh, I usually work with actors who, who have that gift of improvisation. And um, I work with my actors in that process. So it's, a, it's, a, it's basically uh, another aspect of writing. It's, a, it's writing on set. Um, if my actors are willing to discard the written word and riff on the themes of the scene, it's my duty to guide them through that. And uh, sometimes it's a dance, it's a back and forth, where I hear something I like, but it might need tightening, or fleshing out. Um, so as a writer, I take, it, I, I take what my actor gives me in that moment and uh, think of a different approach um, and direct them on how to change it. Um, I, sometimes it's asking questions in the moment. Um, sometimes it's simply feeding them alternate lines um, that are thought of in the moment as the camera is rolling. Um, and it's really just, um, it's almost having a dialogue with my actors and it's a back and forth. Um, So that's how dialogue may be actually reworked and rewritten, Um, but then there are the changes to plot and character arcs that we, as my my filmmaking team, we do our absolute best to keep an open mind to that stuff during production, because um, I wanted to organically live. I wanted to organically grow. Um, So... My initial screenplay is, is more than a blueprint, but I still like to see it as a blueprint. Um, we usually uh, shoot just enough in chronological order that we're able to see the film from a bird's eye perspective and notice if things need adjustment. And my, um, my co-screenwriter, Chris Bragash, it's very important for him to be present on set. You know, that's not usual. That's not the normal, normal thing to do. Uh, usually a you know, screenwriter, well, you'll never see him or her on set. Um, but it's important for me because uh, we are basically in the process of finding the, film, the screenplay for a second time there. And um, I'm gonna give you an example um, with Tangerine. Um, my, Chris actually was present and realized that just by observing and being on set that we needed something more in our third act. And this was about two and a half to three weeks into production. Um, and he he came to me and he goes, We're missing, we're missing something. We have, you know, our three act structure, we have our, you know, we have our reveals, but there's a third act twist that seems to be missing. And um, this simply came from him, you know, analyzing what we had captured up to that point and realizing that our final scene would be more impactful if a betrayal preceded it. So, close to that third week of production, we just took the nights off. You know, that, the nights that we had, and wrote um, a scene in which it revealed that our lead character, uh, Alexandra, had slept with her best friend's man. And this change, this this is a big change because it requires us to then rehearse with our actors to figure out a night to shoot this. It, you know, it, it, it's 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 a little bit difficult for production to handle this, especially on limited budgets and time. Um, But in the case of all, well, in five of my six features, significant adjustments like that and additions have been made during production. So that's the rewriting portion that takes place during production. And I just gave you a spoiler, as you you heard. Um, This is gonna be rife full of spoilers. I'm sorry about that. (laughs) Um, So spoiler alert from this point on. Um, okay, so then there's the third stage, um, post-production. And this is where I, I write the film for the third time um, because I edit my own films. I have the liberty to find the film all over again in the edit room. And I, I really consider this part of my writing um, very much part of my directing. You know, it gives it its signature. It gives it, at that moment, I get to uh, to play with pacing. I get to play with... Uh, 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 I, I get to choose what I want in there and what I don't. I, I approach it like a documentary editor, I guess you could say. Um, and uh, I also have had wonderful producers and financiers who have actually allowed me to take a break after production to, take, to get distance from the footage so that, uh, and sometimes up to several months. You know, Mark and Jay Duplass on Tangerine actually gave me over five months to to remove myself before going into the edit room, and this was valuable. This is uh, this was invaluable because uh, it, it allowed me to when I come when I came back to the footage it was you know I was I was, I was seeing it with a f- with fresh eyes, and um, and I, then I tackle it as if I'm editing a documentary, um, and I, I get to play. I allow myself to play with the chronology, and and um, I this will only happen if continuity will allow for it, but. Um, The Florida Project is a perfect example of how I was able to reorder scenes, um, quite extensively, actually, from the way they were written. And this is for exposition, pacing, and emotional impact. Um, I'm sorry, I'm not, how many people in the room have seen the Florida Project? Okay, cool, enough, (laughs) enough. Uh, So I can give an example of that. There is a scene that now comes 25 minutes into the film, it's uh, this, this scene I call the Brazilian tourist scene. Um, two uh, Brazilian tourists on their honeymoon show up at the Magic Castle thinking it was going to be the Magic Kingdom. And uh, they, uh, they're complaining about the state that they're in. They're trying to find, uh, they, were, they obviously are not in the right place. Well, this scene originally was written on page 60 so essentially 60 minutes an hour into the film. Uh, what I found during post-production was that uh, the, we needed that exposition earlier. We needed, in, in many ways, those tourists were our eyes, or you know, outsiders' eyes, um, in a way representing the audience. So uh, giving, that, uh, giving the audience that information 25 minutes in, Seemed right. It seemed uh, keeping the audience in the dark for any longer, uh, I think, would have would have uh, would have would have confused the audience too much. So, so that's a big example of something taking taking it from page sixty and bringing it all the way back to page twenty-five. Now, because the film, you know, is a series of vignettes to a certain degree, continuity was okay. You know, kids are often wearing the same thing. Um, you know, it was a nighttime scene that was separated, so it didn't matter if wardrobe changed. And, uh, this is something I do a lot, but, you know, Florida Project had a lot of this going on. Um, so, those, that's an example of basically, those are the the way, that, that's my screenplay writing. Three, three parts. And, and I, the only reason I bring that all up, Is because that's that's a disclaimer (laughs) that um, you're basically um, the way. It's my way of saying that I don't think I'm going to be able to speak to the craft of screenwriting in the ways that you might be used to hearing uh, spoken about. Um, You know, I studied filmmaking at NYU, and as required, I had uh, filmmaking. uh, I'm sorry, a screenwriting course or two. Um, I'm slightly familiar with uh, the books of Sid Field and William Goldman. Um, that focus on screenplay structure, um, and of course, Joseph Campbell's uh, Hero's Journey. However, I try not to focus on the forms of structure when writing. I actually, um, I never want structure to be apparent. You know, it's, uh, it's important for me. It's, it, uh, it, 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 the minute that I recognize structure, it takes me out. Um, I wanna feel like I'm living and breathing with the characters and spending time with them, at least in my films, you know. Um, and if there's a three-act structure, which there are in my films, I want the, the acts to be difficult to point out, to find, um, you know, for the act breaks to be blurred as much as possible. Um, so when I was asked to, to do this lecture, this talk, I thought I'd speak about those screenplays that I, that I consider exceptional, um, genius, in fact, and, and tell you why I think, th- I think this. And I was going to choose um, one screenplay and tell you all the reasons I think it's wonderful. Um, and I was entertaining uh, Gary Oldman's Nail by Mouth and was going to focus on the sum of the vignettes to make a powerful whole. I was thinking about Chang Dong Lee's uh, Oasis um, and was going to focus on the humanist approach to telling a sweeping love story of, of two social outcasts. Um, I was thinking about speaking of, of the clever use of the 1988 National League Championship as a framework for, the, for a story of corruption and redemption in Zoe Lund's Bad Lieutenant. Um, sadly, the only screenplay ever produced by this talent uh, who left us too early. But quite honestly, I, I began to realize that it was, actually, it was the themes and the sensibility of these scripts that had more of an influence on my work than the structure. Uh, And plus, as I just told you, I can't really speak to structure (laughs) that well. Um, And so I didn't really know where to begin. And a few nights ago, actually, um, I was was lying in bed, and and I realized there actually is one film out there that, that really did have a direct influence on my work, structurally speaking. The film is only 11 years old, and it happens to be a documentary. And, uh, well, you know, is there a screenplay for a documentary? Well, um, sometimes there's a script that's, you know, <coughs> that's used as a way of guiding the edit. But it really depends on the filmmaker. And obviously, documentar- documentaries are evolving. There's now a hybrid of documentary and narrative fiction filmmaking that truly blurs the line. And, and these films sometimes have screenplays. Um, You never know, actually. But the film I'm speaking about is is essentially a cinema verite documentary, uh, real events that are captured on the fly, intercut with interviews of of its subjects. Um, In this case, it is the edit. It's the choice and the order of shots and sequences uh, that become the screenplay in my eyes. That's my take on it. Um, the film is Jake Clenell's 2006 feature documentary, The Great Happiness Space, Tale of an Osaka Love Thief. This is a very underappreciated film that I discovered back in 07, and I fell in love with it for many reasons. Um, it actually happens to be a British film and was nominated for a British Independent Film Award for Best British Documentary. Uh, The subject of the great happiness space is Japan's host bar scene, where women pay for the company of men. It's um, set in Osaka. Um, It's a documentary that investigates the underground world of high-end Japanese clubs. Attractive young men serve as escorts for wealthy female patrons. And Jack Clennell followed the male staff as they are taught how to make themselves appear as objects of desire, um, the hosts can earn about $10,000 to $50,000 a month. And um, the owner, who is the, uh, the subject, the, 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 uh, the focus of the documentary, his name is Isi, he's, one, he's the host of the most popular uh, club in Osaka, and he has a staff of 20. Um, the, young me- the young women who are patrons of the club spend thousands a night for their company bottle service, just just entry for the club. Um, It's very expensive. So when the audience learns of the fantastic sums that the clients pay for this privilege, the question is raised, how can they they afford to pay so much? And there is an incredible, fascinating reveal at 38 minutes in, which is uh, for a film that runs 76 minutes, the exact halfway mark. Most of the clients, at least the, the high spending ones, are also sex workers. And in that flash, the viewer realizes that there's a mutual sustained illusion that stems from that very human need of connection, the need for love. And I see it as a a vicious cycle that has obvious obvious effects on everyone involved. Um, But while the young men at the end of the night may stagger home physically and emotionally drained, possibly because of the guilt they suppress, um, they've made thousands of dollars while the young women stagger home with nothing, including the love that they so desperately need. Um, This this film had a profound impact on me, and I I could not stop thinking about it for days. It haunted me. Now, if you know my work, um, you can probably see that there are many reasons I find this film so compelling. The film focuses on those on the fringe, those leading alternative lifestyles. Um, universal themes of love and loneliness are explored, as well as the uh, societal stigma of sex work and the issues of exploitation. There are lots to there's lots of things to explore, lots of issues and topics to explore, explore in this film. Um, but it was that twist, that character reveal, that made an indelible impact on me as a screenwriter. And if, if the information of the, the female clients being prostitutes themselves was given to the audience from the get-go the film as a whole would not have a fraction of the emotional impact it does now now I'm sorry I had to spoil it that way to you uh, you know waiting 38 minutes and under and, and thinking you know that world and then getting that twist it really it really is a punch to the gut and I found that storytelling choice to be very you know it, extremely profound, and so what I want to talk about is this sort of I, I guess I can I guess I can call it a character reveal, and it's something that I've tried to apply to my last three films because of this film, uh, and it's not what I think some uh, some of those who who, who teach screenwriting call um, a reversal of identity. It's not that um, where you know the true identity of a character is revealed. Uh, so this isn't the Norman Bates psycho thing or the uh, you know, Darth Vader, Luke, I'm your father moment. Uh, but it's simply a reveal of the character's circumstance. Um, and while this might, may not may be quite eye-opening for the audience, it's quite matter-of-fact for the characters, for, our, you know, for the subjects. Because our characters have been living in this circumstance for some time. Um, a reveal of something significant in one of the main character's lives which is conveniently kept from the audience for approximately half the picture, to maximize the uh, reveals effect, and this leaves the audience in a place where they suddenly must question everything they thought they knew about the character, reevaluate the character's actions, decisions, and behavior up to that up to this point, and from that point on. Also, this reveal can challenge the audience to reexamine the character's place and role in society. Um, And these are usually secrets, Um, but if not secrets, details about the character's desires, livelihood, or history that they don't openly share with the world. Um, And it becomes, in a way, a privilege for the audience to have these details shared with them. Um, This reveal, this character reveal, rarely changes the plot or the course of the plot. However, ideally, it forces the audience to question how and why they were judging the character and how and why their perception perception of the character has now changed. Um, so I realized that the some of the fiction-narrative films that have been the most emotionally impact and meaningful to my life and career have a version of this, this device in their screenplays. Uh, one example, Harold and Maud. Um, Harold noticing Maud's concentration camp tattoo. Um, this one shot reveals an integral part of Maud's past. It begins to make sense at that point that Maud would celebrate life and freedom above all else because those are the exact things that the Nazis took from their victims. Um, and when I was actually preparing this, and, and uh, it was then that I f- began to fully realize uh, the extent to which i have been using this device, because it was very obvious for me, I applied it to Starlet, and I'll show you that clip in a second. Um, but I also see that it was in Tangerine, and I also see that it's in The Florida Project. Um, and again, here come the spoilers, so sorry, but I'm going to show you some, some clips here. Um, first off, Starlet. Now, in this case, we've been with our protagonist, Jane, for over, I think, 45 minutes, so half the film. and you can see that I actually you know, took that device and applied it to this, uh, revealing that Jane is a sex worker herself in the porn industry, and challenging the audience to then think about that and, and why and how they are, they are judging her character. Um, I, uh, I then realized by, by putting this together that I did something similar with Tangerine, and I don't think I was completely aware of it until just recently. But it, it's, it's a scene in which I, uh, again, it's a character reveal of the uh, Armenian cab driver, Razmik. Um, and um, this this scene actually was very, for me, when the film was released in theaters and I was watching audiences' reactions, it's a very interesting thing that happened. Um, this scene out of every scene in the film got the most walkouts. And we were wondering why. We were always trying to figure out why. It wasn't as gratuitous or... <laughs> uh, in any, it wasn't as, uh, I would say, as shocking, any more shocking than any of the other scenes. Um, but um, w- what, has, what I believe happened is that um, this reveal actually ended up to some audiences out there, some close-minded audience members, uh, I think it felt like a betrayal to them. I, felt, I think that I think that uh, perhaps some people who needed the anchor of perhaps a cisgender straight white male, then all of a sudden when we reveal <coughs> Rasmick's sexual preference, they felt as if they were betrayed by the screenwriter and director and, and left the room, uh, left the auditorium. Um, so, you know, that was a very, it was almost a psychological study. It was almost like a, a sociological study of the audience with this scene. And it wasn't something that I was aware of until, you know, the film was out there playing to audiences. Um, but uh, again, it wasn't just until recently that I realized that it's pretty much the same thing. This, this scene comes around 40 minutes into the film, after we've spent time with Razmik, uh, we've we've uh, we've 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 spent time on with his daily routine, picking up and dropping off passengers, um, and out of all the characters, I believe uh, he would be the least likely likely to suddenly throw the audience uh, a reveal like this, or he would he would be uh, the audience would not be expecting something from this character in those terms. So, um, and then fl- the Florida project. Um, I believe the Florida Project, I also do this at, at around the 50, at the, around the halfway mark. Um, and it's, 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 I would say, a little more subtle, um, but it is a character reveal with, uh, with the Bobby character played by Willem Dafoe, and um, in that scene, through a lot of mumbled words and very little dialogue, we, we can get the sense that Bobby is estranged. From probably what uh, probably his uh, Jack's mother, his wife, um, and um, and Bobby is in a place where he is so isolated, so lonely that he is paying his own son for his company, and and uh, and that's it. That doesn't it doesn't change the course of the plot. It's literally just giving you a little more insight on who Bobby is. And perhaps you reevaluate, that's my hope, you reevaluate his relationship with the residents. He has a reluctant parental, he is the reluctant parental figure for many of the children there. And then you have to analyze, oh, what what is it in his own life, in his own, uh, you know, uh, his relationship with his son and with his uh, estranged wife that has, uh, and how that affects his his current relationships with the residents. So I hope that I have uh, given you a little bit of insight on one of the devices that I find very important in my screenplays and screenplays that I adore. Um, I hope this wasn't too elementary for anybody out there. And um, I'm, I'm really happy I had the opportunity to do this because number one, it allowed me to to spread the word about a very underappreciated film, The Great Happiness Space, which I recommend you all see. But it also forced me to um, examine my own craft. It's something I rarely do, and I found this very fulfilling. It, it actually made me see that common thread in the last three films. So thank you so much for this opportunity, and uh, yeah, Q and A time. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Sean, thank you so much for that, and um, we, te- we don't take your disclaimer that you can't talk about screenwriting, that's complete rubbish. Um, thank you. Hello, everybody. Um, uh, we've got, oh, and the other thing is, thank you so much as, as well for introducing me to the Great Happiness mm. space, which I you know, knew you were going to clip from today, and then I had a moment to kind of have a quick look on YouTube yesterday, mm. and I found myself going down a rabbit hole. Mm. It's a film that's impossible not to watch, and, in fact, I got to the point where you showed the reveal there, and yes. I understood. And uh, yeah, it's amazing, I have to say, get on YouTube. It's, it's wonderful to see. Um, Sean, I, I, there's so much to ask you about, but let's start with the, the kind of the, 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 the thing that's talked about so often about you, which is your ability to immerse yourself in a world that's not yours. Mm. You are not mm. black or trans or a poverty-stricken young child or a prostitute or any of those things, yet you can inhabit a world in a way that most people cannot in, with a really incredibly authentic voice, I wonder if you've got any understanding of how you do that.
1: I, you know, I really think it just it, it comes down to being very aware and and conscious of the fact that representation is very important and should be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. And you have to do it as a storyteller and as a filmmaker. It has to be done in a very responsible and respectful way. And uh, and I have been I've been fortunate enough over the years. To uh, through my through the pre-production stage, you know, the research process, um, to to when I when I approach communities saying I want to make a, a film about this community or this neighborhood or this subculture, um, I found people who want their stories told, and I, and 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 for me, I'm simply the amplifier of the voice I'm not the voice so when we when when Chris Bergash and I went into tangerine we literally went in there knowing one thing or no two things I'm sorry it was going to take place on the corner of Santa Monica and Highland and that there was going to be a climactic confrontation in a mike lee style at uh, at donut time and that was it and that was really it because we didn't understand the world yet we didn't we didn't we hadn't spoken to anybody we're to cisgender white men from outside of that world, we needed to find collaborators. And and that came in the form of Maya Taylor. Maya was the one who first showed enthusiasm, who said she wanted to act, she had friends to introduce us to. She sat down with us, gave us her time, so did her friends. And and then it was about asking them, what stories do you want told? And, and basically, uh, after hearing enough where we felt confident that we could then start Picking and choosing, you know, um, saying, "Oh, that's a that's that's uh, that's a great little idea for maybe a, a vignette, or there, here's a subplot, or um, there's a character. Yeah, we can we can flesh that out." And it was one day that actually Kiki was um, she she indirectly brought us the main plot of the film, which was a search for a cisgender woman who might be part of a, you know. Uh, an affair with her boyfriend, and this was something that uh, didn't happen in real life, but was suspected for a moment. So we riffed on that, and we said, "How would this play out in real life?" You know, we 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 ask a lot of questions, and I think that's the big part of it. It's uh, it's 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 always asking for approval and and asking for for people in the community to sign off on it, saying, "You know, do, do you approve of this? Is this the way it would play that out? Is this this representation you know accurate?" And um, this has happened for basically for every one of my films to certain degrees uh, you know it didn't have to happen as much with Florida because it's a film about childhood It didn't have to happen as much with uh, Starlet because again that's a intergenerational relationship I can pull from my own life on that. Um, but um, it really stemmed from, a little bit from Takeout, in which you know, we were living above a Chinese restaurant at the time, and we, we spent a lot of time in the stairwell talking to the delivery men uh, before they went out on their uh, runs. And then the following film, Prince of Broadway, which really was the one that basically showed me how to do this, because Prince of Broadway took over a year. And that was a, that was a tough one to crack, because you are, you're dealing with the wholesale district in New York City. And um, the men who are selling counterfeit goods on the street um, are primarily uh, African, undocumented African immigrants. So they don't want to talk to you. You know, you, you, might be, you might be ICE, you might be uh, NYPD, or you might just be annoying film students that they don't have the time for. And you have to, and it's about gaining trust, it's about befriending, and, and it's about, again, hearing the voices of the community. So I hope that answers that question. Absolutely, except
2: yeah. it's interesting that you say you go back and check with that community, particularly on something like Tangerine. Mm. That's that's interesting to me because obviously that community has lots of different voices. There isn't one way of being. No. No. So how? So you must have your own kind of, your own personality that has to come through and you have to be the one to, to make the ultimate decision about what a character does
1: or that's, says. That is true, uh, that is true. Um, but again this is also a microcosm it is about this area it's not about all trans people it's not about all sex workers it's not about all armenian cab drivers it's about this particular area yeah. and 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 then you yes you do have to pick one story you do have to go with one story and and then it comes down to I guess my own personal interests. I really, yeah.
2: And what about your relationship with Chris? You started to talk a little bit about it there. Yeah. Um, kind of how do you check each other? Kind of, and, and physically, how does that relationship work? Who goes away and does what? I mean, you talked about him coming back onto set, but.
1: Well, we try to, when we're actually uh, doing our, our journalistic approach mm-hmm. to this, we, we try to do our interviews together. You know Victoria Tate and I. Actually, she's an uh, she's primarily an actor, but she helped me with uh, the the research process of Prince of Broadway. Um, And she, we were always together. We were always together, um, asking the gentlemen on the streets to have coffee with us, to sit down with us. So, uh, but with Chris. It really, he also had time with Florida, the Florida Project, because his mother was living in that area, he also had a lot more access at at some point than I did. It wasn't until we got like a a grant that we actually started taking trips, that I started taking trips there and understanding the world more, so. It really depends it's project to project mm-hmm. yeah.
2: and then just expand a little bit on the thing you started to talk about about being an editor as well which mm. is a pres- i'm sort of surprised that with more kind of auteur filmmakers there isn't that kind of writer director edit mm. hybrid mm. Um, can you do you do you think it's a kind of left brain right brain thing that you you have one kind of attitude when you start writing and then another when you edit
1: the only thing that i can say about that is it is such a lengthy process, that you are in a different place when you edit. Just your life has changed over the course of a year and a half, so you might be thinking different things. Um, I... um,
2: Well, let me ask it a different way then. With with the project, with the last three films that you've done, can you think back to the original script or perhaps kind of story kernel that you had, and then compare it to the kind of thing that you ended up with at the end of the edit, and kind of how, what's the relationship between those two?
1: They're sometimes drastically different and sometimes not. Uh, tangerine, drastically different in terms of style. Um, we, uh, I told my producers uh, going into it, uh, there was going to be no music. No. No music. Don't budget for music, guys. And <laughs> <laughs> they, they want to kill me, you know, um, because it's wall to wall music. Um, and it became that way literally after the first day of me sitting down with the edit. Um, I. Well, not the first day. I got past that opening scene where the two women are speaking in, the, in donut time. And then then Cindy you know, charges out of donut time. And I realized at that moment that, well, first off, the film is, is, is shot in an energetic manner. Um, and there's an energy, I think, also in that neighborhood that sort of was captured without me even knowing until I started looking at all of this footage. and. Um, I moved the camera more. I, um, I I had more coverage because maybe I was shooting on the iPhone, so I had more coverage, and I and I had the opportunity to cut faster if I wanted to. And this sort of story felt like it needed that. Mm-hmm. Um, I take that back, actually. I don't. I don't think I had any more coverage than than Florida, but that I think that Tangerine needed that energy, that mm-hmm. pulsating hyperactivity the entire time, whereas Florida, I, want, I, I truly wanted to sit and watch kids perform. It was very important for me not to manipulate their performance. I wanted to show there was real child performances. Mm-hmm. So I slowed down the edit there. But with, with Tangerine, yeah, I, um, I had no idea it was going to be this hyperactive. I didn't know it was going to be this full of music until I was in the edit room.
2: Okay, and when you were writing Tangerine, did you, you talked then about making it on iPhones, which of course is the kind of infamous thing about the film. Mm.
1: Did you know that's how you were going to make it or did you just write it? No, actually we, we, were, we, are, we had already written it. Okay. And that, and part of the reason why we went with the iPhone was initially a budgetary reason. Uh, we, we had written a film that basically could not be made for the budget that we had. Right. And then it was about where are we gonna cut costs? And the first thing I looked into was the iPhone. But then it's quickly within... You, you quick When you do that with a medium, you, you quickly have to look for the aesthetic benefits of using that medium. Because you don't want that medium just to be dictated by budget. You have to then look at it as a way of uh, being able to capture something you wouldn't with another medium. Yes. So. So we quickly realized that it was also a way of blending in to shoot clandestinely, to, to shoot with first-timers and not intimidate them. Um, so, so, uh, so yes, it came after the initial scriptment was written. And when I say, that's something I didn't even bring up. Uh, we have a scriptment uh, before a total uh, full screenplay which is half a treatment, half a, a script. A scriptment. That's what we call it, a scriptment. And it's usually what allows us to, it, what gets us financing. Okay. Um, because as we, our, our, I don't think our screenplay is ever complete until just a few days before shooting. Okay. And then, as I said, uh, during shooting, it's constantly evolving.
2: Okay, and then having had that Tangerine experience Mm. and going through to the Florida project, which you presumably knew you were not going to make in the same kind of unconventional grabbed style, I mean, how much did that change the way you wrote? Do you think it affected the kind of the choices you made around scripting?
1: Good question. Um, I I believe that, uh, no, that was probably a directing style that I only had in my head. To tell you the truth, I knew I I, I did. Have, there is a line in the in the screenplay that says there will be no score. You know that was I have some screen direction, some stylistic direction in the screenplays, mm-hmm. even though Chris hates that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because you know Chris is very. He wants to stick right to. Is you know, Chris
2: a writer? Just a writer? Uh,
1: right now, yes. Okay. I think he wants to direct, but um, but right now he is uh, yes a full time scream. Playwriter and he screenwriter and he um, he he likes standard screenplay format and um, and so when I do stuff like that it's it's not considered professional
2: Um,
1: but it's necessary for me because I also want people when they read the script to, to I want the actors to understand that when we'll be playing with them and when you know when I'll be asking them to improvise. Uh, and I, I want my I want my DP to understand you know my production designer to understand things so I really I do I, I, I sometimes look at that you know the traditional you know screenplay format as is, is a little bit limiting but anyway that's another topic yeah
2: okay um, I think it's this interesting trajectory you've got in and you talked a little about structure and I think that your uh, the you know starlet Tangerine are relatively conventionally structured and have a kind of tr- fairly traditional narrative, mm. albeit in an unusual world. Mm. Um, Florida Project is slightly less so. I think it's mm. much more kind of zigzag and mm. free flowing. Mm. It, kind of talk to- talk a little bit about that. How you how you determined that that was what you were going to do this time?
1: Well, I um, I always knew that with. This film, I wanted to again. As I've been moving out, I've been trying to get away from again recognizable, uh, you know, standard or or recognizable techniques Mm -hmm. of of screenwriting. Um, I wanted to, as I said earlier, if I have a three-act structure, to disguise it and cover it up as much as possible. Um, If there is, if if it's genre, I want that you know disguised or. Or hidden, um, but I, uh, but in this case, I always wanted to spend the summer with the children. I wanted to f- have the audience feel as if they were just spending the summer with the kids, and getting to know the kids personally, so that the ending would have uh, the Im- the impact I'm hoping it has. You know? mm-hmm. So um, that we actually did in our screenplay, we had scenes that were more. I would say, expositional. We had scenes that, we uh, and we shot those scenes, but they didn't make it into the final film. That's again why I'm saying I'm rewriting, I'm writing on in post as well, because I'm making that decision of how much or how little we're telling the audience. And um, there was a lot of exposition, not a lot, but there was more. And there was, um, the whole ending, I would say, was the last act was way more procedural. Like we actually told the audience um, how an investigation like this would go down. We had scenes with the caseworker talking to Haley and explaining what she has to do um, and getting into a lot of detail there. Mm -hmm. But every time, as an editor, every time I started playing with those scenes or trying to put them in, it didn't feel right. And I knew in the back of my head that I was shooting this, I was scripting and shooting this for safety's sake. Only if we really, only if the audience was truly lost. Mm -hmm. And, and every, yeah, we had, some, we had some great scenes, actually. There was a scene that took place in the, front, in the lobby with uh, mostly all adults. See, that's the thing. Every time I put in a scene which was primarily adults and had, didn't have any children, it felt like a different movie. But anyway, the scene was a, uh, it was um, Bobby Narik, who is the owner of the Magic Castle, the two clerks, and they are discussing the Yelp ads. And uh, and Bobby is like uh, no, um, Narik is like what what does ratchet even mean you know and, and, and he's he's thinking about actually asking some of the residents to to write some fake reviews for ten dollars each. In comes Bria or Haley, and he says, uh, young lady, come over here, ten dollars a piece. And Bobby's like, no no, don't go there, not her. <laughs> and that scene was great, and all of the actors killed it, but uh, it just didn't belong in the movie. Mm. And so. Um, so this is the first time that I've had, I guess, the luxury of shooting stuff just for safety purposes. Mm-hmm.
2: Um, that's interesting that you picked on the kind of social work mm. uh, element that you had gone into in a little more detail. You mm. teased us a little bit, and you mm. certainly teased me, mm. when, in your lecture by talking a little bit about British realism, mm. the kind of tradition of British realism. Mm. You mentioned *Nil by mouth. Yeah. I know you've talked a lot about Ken Loach mm. before. Um, Particularly in terms of something like the social worker yes. uh, element. I mean, do you see a parallel between the work that you do and the work that somebody like Ken Loach does? I mean,
1: well, I mean, I I, uh, I look to him as a, just an, a master, and um, his entire career is just incredibly aspirational and inspirational. And I um, I uh, don't think I could ever even consider myself like I wouldn't even want to make those parallels because I wouldn't feel worthy. But at the same time, I do feel like we uh, perhaps are, uh, well, we're tackling similar subject matter. And um, and perhaps, you know, my, my style is, 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 is a little different, a little poppier, it's a little, mm. uh, you know, I, I know sort of the audience that I'm trying to get. And I, I feel that I'm using, uh, I'm trying to let's just say, with the American audiences right now, um, I feel as if you tell them that they're going to get a politically heavy-handed film, Mm -hmm. you won't get them in the theater. Mm -hmm. And this is a sad thing, this is something that is unfortunate, but it's also something in which then as a filmmaker, I've had to figure out ways of just, uh, I think Tangerine really opened our eyes to this because we, we tackled it in a way where You know, humor was first and foremost, and and so people call it a comedy. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is supposed to be entertaining. It's supposed to entertain an audience for a certain certain amount of time, Um, but then hopefully leave them thinking about, uh, you know, issues or thinking, uh, rethinking the way that they look at certain groups, et cetera, et cetera. Mm I, I, I feel that that was definitely, when Tangerine did that for us and we realized that was the first film to reach a greater audience and it may have been because of the style, we, we applied this to, to, to Florida mm-hmm. using the humor of watching little children as, and, the, and just focusing on the joy of children and, um, and using that as a way of, of hopefully pulling audiences in.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it's interesting you say that because I, uh, thinking about the kind of Ken Loach connection, mm. which I know you've talked about a lot, I actually thought there was lots more parallels between you and the kind of new generation of, you know, our replacement for Ken Loach, mm. people like Andrea Arnold mm. or Claire Bernard or Lynn Ramsey. And actually, one of the things that they all, three of those, do, I think I'm just making this up as I go along, but I think they all have a kind of um, fascination with kind of children in peril. Oh. There's a lot of children in peril in their movies. And actually, you know, a lot of what you did is there's a lot of tension, mm. particularly at the outset, there's a lot of
1: tension. Mm. You're not sure where, you know, how much peril you're going to put your children in. Right. Yes, um, yeah, I see, I see <laughs> that connection as well. I, I do have to say, though, that also, I, I think I was very influenced by earlier Ken Loach, especially uh, Kess and Riff Raff. Mm-hmm. If you think about, remember the soccer scene in Kess? Of course. That is incredible. Yeah. And it's one of the the funniest scenes ever captured on film it's laugh out loud funny um, and so is a lot of those scenes in riff Raff. I don't think people remember the interaction between those men and just the behavioral comedy mm-hmm. and so um, you know I, I I actually do feel that you know using using him as a model of of, uh, of uh, you know tackling you know political subjects doing social criticism um, but then at the same time, always having those human moments that make you smile and make you laugh and make you realize, you, okay, you are watching real people that you can identify with and connect with. Um, that's something that I believe really stemmed from him.
2: Talk about you know, making, doing kind of scenes like those and how much, to what extent they were improvised, to what extent they were um, your words.
1: Um, don't be a loser, okay does she says she says okay um, but don't call me a loser or whatever she says that was improvised that moment um, the uh, this the scene where they're I mean the, the shot where they're outside talking about uh, or asking for money I gave them sample lines I gave them a bunch of lines to say uh, so um, Christopher asking for ice cream because he has his doctor says he has asthma um, That was actually, I think, workshopped. I think that was one of those workshops, because we did a lot of rehearsals with the Mm -hmm. kids, and we had asked them sometimes to put it into their own words. And that was something that he did in a rehearsal that we really loved and just said, do that again when we're on set. Um, The rest is pretty much scripted. Mm -hmm. And um, some of it was scripted in post, like the walking past Orange World. Mm. That dialogue was actually ADR, and we had Brooklyn and Christopher perform it.
2: Okay. And with somebody like Brooklyn, who I've seen non-stage, I'm sure some people have seen the, the you know, have seen her
1: mm.
2: interacting with the press, interacting with the public. I mean, she's clearly a live wire. Yes. How do you rein somebody like that in without kind of squashing oh, her? Oh no,
1: but she's a live wire, but she's a professional live wire. It's like she, she, uh, she. You don't have to rein her in. Um, the only one time when I felt like. It was a mistake to ask the kids to improvise. Was when they were doing the tour, uh, where they're giving the tour of the Magic Castle. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that I would just be able to to feed them lines from behind the camera and follow them up and down, you know, the the walkway and have them riff. Well, no. It's when all three kids together, it starts to go off the rails, and especially because. Christopher that day was was obsessed with Deadpool it had just come out in theaters so all he could say was Deadpool lives in here Deadpool lives in no Deadpool doesn't live at the Magic Castle Christopher. <laughs> let's move on um, so after we actually had to go back and shoot that a second day and this time have what more scripted lines for them and uh, and so yeah that's the only time where I felt it did get out of hand mm-hmm. in turn- yeah but um, uh, for the most part, you know, Brooklyn is just incredible, and especially when she's alone working with the adults, it's really just, it's it. She's on the same level as the adults. I mean, she's she's uh, she'll know when and when not to give. You know, she she'll um, she has proper instincts. I mean, really incredible instincts um, as an actor to what's funny and what isn't. It's really, uh, it, and she pulls a lot from I think her own life. I think, you know. Um, that scene in which she's eating at the end and we're just sort of observing her or documenting her eat to a certain degree. Uh, this is the scene where they're, they're at the, uh, near the very end, they, they go to the higher end restaurant to the brunch um, and we just are watching almost the, the mother's POV as we're just watching her eat. And we gave her a number of scripted lines and she got through those scripted lines pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And then we had about another nine minutes on the magazine just to watch. And so that's a that's what I described earlier. There's a back and forth. I'm behind the camera. So is Chris. So is Samantha Kwan, who, our, our acting coach. And we're just basically feeding her lines and asking her questions. Mm-hmm. Like, hey, what would happen if you put that strawberry and that raspberry in your mouth at the same time? And then she would do that, and, and, and she would tell us what, what it would taste like. And she was so wonderful, because as a comedic, uh, somebody who is wonderful at comedic improvisation, they never give you what you suspect, or what you expect. I'm sorry. Uh, so she would say, uh, putting a strawberry and a raspberry in your mouth, you would think that would taste pretty good, actually. But she goes, man, oh, man, that's gross. You know, and that's her. <laughs> that's her. She, um, and I, I'm sure she didn't find it gross. See, because she loves food, and but she knew it would be funny if she said, "Man, oh man, that's gross." <laughs> so that's what—how smart she is. She's really a prodigy. Um, and then I would feed her lines, and then she would take it to the next level. So I would say, uh, "Tell, tell, tell your mom that you wish you had a bigger stomach, so you could eat more food." And she goes, "I wish I had a bigger stomach, like I was pregnant." <laughs> but, and then she acted and. She that was her, and so she elevated it, she brought it to the next level. And then we're trying to analyze it later that night. Samantha and I were just thinking, What got her to say that? And then we realized, Oh, well, her mother was pregnant at the time that we were shooting. So it's like you can see it's coming from a child's head of what they're absorbing and what they're and what she's spitting it out to us. It's Mm -hmm. pretty incredible.
2: And how, um, we're going to take some questions in one second just before we do. I, I just you talked a I thought it was fascinating what you said about the reveal and kind of how explicit you are mm. and how much you leave to the sides. Um, with um, um, with there's a really key scene um, about uh, the point when you realise that Heli is is a prost- is is prostituting herself again. And you are not explicit about it. Mm. You just, we just see uh, Mooney in the bath, uh, you know, you, and you're not, you you let us kind of figure it all out. I think that means that you really trust your audience. Mm. Uh, does that?
1: Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah, you have to. You can't play for the lowest common denominator because if you do, what sort of film are you making? You know, you have to hope the audience is on your level or, or higher.
2: <laughs> but as you become more, you know, the budgets get bigger mm. and you, there are mm. more people involved in mm. your process, mm. have you had to, did you, do you have to fight to kind of keep that?
1: No, so far, no. Okay. So far, I've worked with wonderful producers and financiers who have no problem with that. Mm. Of course, there's always questions, there's always notes, you know, like uh, when we did, we have, you know, the repetition of the three tub scenes before the fourth one that reveals <clears throat> what's going on. And uh, yeah, there was a question. I got to know. Are you sure this isn't too much? Are you sure we're keeping the audience? We we're, we're we're not keeping the audience in the too in in the dark too much so that they'll be turned off or or, or upset. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was like, no, I'm I do not think that. <laughs> Moving on. And they were they were great with that. You know, they, I'm working with a team of people who who trust me. So, yeah.
2: lucky us. Uh, let's take some questions. I think we have some mics on either side, so if you could, there's one down here.
3: Good. First, many things. I think that was a great talk, um, opening the door to your set um, in, in a way. And you know, just wonder if we can crack it open a little bit, little bit more. You're talking about working with um, non-actors as well as as well as actors, and you also have these coaches and advisors around. I just wonder how that works, how do you manage all the levels of expression and confidence
1: and so on, if you can talk a little bit more about that. Sure, Uh, well, I've been, you you have to take the time to cast right, you know, you have to, you know, I've been, the first timers that I've brought on have all had confidence, they've all had skill, they've just never acted before, Um, and so, uh, Bria was probably the most extreme case of never having at all 100% green. You know Maya Taylor and Kitana Kiki Rodriguez. At least they would perform on stage. At least they did. You know they they were uh, Kiki even had some uh, was in a high school drama group. So was Prince Adu. So I think of all the people I've worked with in terms of first timers, Bria was the one who's the most green. Um, and but it was about but she also showed that she had. The motivation to 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 learn and and um, and would put in the time. You know, she she came she didn't have to, but she came a month early from shoot. Uh, uh, she came a month earlier from a shooting before we needed her to, to basically spend time with Samantha and myself and um, and get her to a place where she was able to hold her own with Willem. So it was um, but how it's a it's a on set it's really. It's all about different personalities. You have to treat everybody slightly differently. You know, With Willem, I, don't, I hardly have to say anything. And, you know, he's a skilled, transformative actor with years and years of experience. So our talks primarily happened in pre-production when we were talking about the character. And I knew he was already there by the time we were shooting. So if anything, there were minor tweaks Oh, I'm not sure. I really love the way that you deliver that line. Can we try something else? I would never give him a line read, by the way, <laughs> but with first timers, it's okay to give a line read. A line read can sometimes be very insulting to a seasoned actor. So, um, so uh, with Willem, you know, it was, it was, it was. Uh, actually, he made my life easy. He made my days easy with him. But then with the uh, the, the other actors, you know, it's all based on their level of experience and, uh, and, uh, and their personalities and what they, how much they need, how much they need hand-holding. Um, again, I really don't think I would have been able to make this film this way without my acting coach with the kids. I mean, they, she really spent a lot of time with them every single day. When I was off shooting some scenes with the adults or location scouting, they were always in those motel rooms uh, doing exercises, games. Uh, to get them to that place so that when I was shooting with them they could I could ask them to uh, you know to, to loosen it up if I needed them to um, I hope that answered that question yeah, yeah.
2: I'm sure who's got the mic yes there no.
1: check, check, check. hi hi Sean thanks for your talk um,
0: you talked about the three phases of screenwriting and yeah. I'm interested in what happens before the first phase in terms of before you decide on a concept, how, how do you prioritize your ideas, and you know, kind of get them to that place of, of actually wanting to start?
1: Oh, oh, that's a good question. I think I'm in that right now. Um, <laughs> it's it's uh, there's so many factors that go into that. You know, usually it's 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 whatever film you've just made that helps dictate what the next one is. Um, in terms of audience response and, and in terms of the impact it's had or, or the subject matter you've covered, whether you want to cover it again or in a different way. And, and so it really, uh, for me, uh, you know, I've been, the, the, the initial stages, or the initial stage is really just a lot of brainstorming and a lot of uh, getting on the phone with my, my co-screenwriter and, and discussing the possibilities. And then also figuring out each film has, you know, you're also dealing with a, you're hoping to increase your budget. So that sometimes will dictate things. Um, but we do, we do get to a, a treatment as soon as possible. That's very important. Um, and, and the treatment has the ending. That's very important for me. I always have to at least understand how this film will end. And I think for all of my films, we've known the ending from almost the onset.
2: Specifically, you knew the ending of Florida?
1: Yes. Now, not specifically, meaning the way it played out, it's slightly different. than Our original concept was that she ran to the park alone. That was five years ago. Then as we started to get closer, we thought it was actually going to be Mooney that took Jancy to the park. And then as we just close to production, when we realized that we were, that it was all, the whole movie, it, usually what happens is that I figure out what the movie is in production. And, and it was very close to production and I figured out, oh, okay, Mooney has basically shown Jancy the world. She's been her tour guide the entire time. Now Mooney is in, of, in the worst place, in the most vulnerable place. She doesn't have control anymore. So it's time to give control to Jancy and to let her guide her into whatever that last moment is, mm-hmm. however you want to interpret that. But so that was, we did, but we did know it was going to be an escape to the park from almost day one.
2: Uh, Steph.
3: Um, thank you for taking us through how you write your script before directing and then editing. And then at the end, at, when the film finishes, then I think the script finished. I just want to know your views. When you're looking at other people's films, when the scriptwriter is different than the director, than the editor, do you consider some of those films, the editor and the director actually writing the script?
1: Do I cons- um, what's the, the last part of the question? You
3: know? You know, when you're looking at other filmmakers' yes. films, or certain films, that, yes. because you separated these elements, Certain directors, even they haven't written the script mm. or the editor hasn't got anything to do with the script. Right. Actually, those personnel actually actually they were writing the mm. script mm. at the same time they were doing their jobs.
1: Well, I, I, I think I get what you mean. I I this only applies to my films. It's really my that's why I said I'm a i am consider myself a director, writer, editor. It's all one. It's how I make my movies. When I go to see other people's films, to tell you the truth, I try to go as just an audience member, just, just escaping into that content like everybody else, and, 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 ha- and, w- and how it works, uh, you know, I don't, I don't try to pick apart whether I can see three different heads, I don't or two different heads, that's not important to me. Uh, you know, I'm always just judging a film on as a whole. Um, so, yeah. Could I, you I, direct somebody else's script? Uh, I, I I would love to I mean I um, I actually and I mentioned Zoe Lund earlier um, mm. and I actually looked in to see if she had any other unpublished uh, or unproduced screenplays and unfortunately I don't think she does mm-hmm. but um, but uh, yes of course I mean yes I, I would there are incredible screenwriters out there and I just uh, and it's about but I often I have, I have Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <cool, cool>. go <laughs> go um.
2: that, That's more bold. <laughs>
1: we'll talk after. <laughs> <laughs>
2: uh, uh, one down here and then one here. Running s- quickly out of time.
1: Um, thank you very much. It's a brilliant film, folder Project, and a, a brilliant talk just now. Oh, I found it really interesting that you were talking about the end of the film and you knew it, because that was what my question was going to be about, was the end of the film, because I felt like a voyeur the whole time. like I was watching their lives, and at the end it turns into fantasy, they're running off the park, and I, I thought it was interesting you said very specifically that you knew the end about going to the park, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit more about that process of turning it into that fantasy, why you wanted that to be the ending there, why the park kind of comes in, the, the location, it's in Florida, it's, you know, it's, it's, it all comes at that very end, and it, the pace of the film speeds up. It's been quite slow, and it suddenly really speeds up at the end. And I, w- yeah. I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more, and it, especially since you knew that from the very beginning. Right? Yeah, I and and I hope you don't mind. I'm not going to go into too much detail because the whole reason I, I really did want to allow the audience to interpret it. Um, uh, I I know that even it was it was. Uh, even my co-screenwriter has a slightly different interpretation than I do. So it's something that I think allows itself, uh, it, it, it allows itself to be interpreted in different ways. I do say though, it's we are changing mediums at a, at a very vital moment when when little Jancy grabs Mooney's uh, wrist. And um, so I am telling the audience that uh, perhaps uh, we are, no longer in reality. And um, and I also, I'm hoping that audiences see, uh, you know, they've spent the entire film watching Mooney use her sense of imagination and wonderment to, to make the best of what she has. And perhaps this is the audience in, in the mindset of a, of a child using that imagination to make a happy ending. How does the, the no music at the end? Because it yes. stops. The, the well, stops. that's it. That's a see. No, I'm glad you brought that up actually, because that is why um, I love working with my co-screenwriter Chris Bragash, Because as I got closer to the ending, as an edit in the edit, I was I was uh, I was concerned about the end. I didn't, uh, you know, again in my script, I said no score. We only knew we were going to have. Uh, Celebration play in the opening credits, and the rest of it was supposed to be devoid of music except for what came out of uh, Haley's radio. And as I was getting closer and closer, I was really realizing it's not gonna have the impact that I needed it to have. I got on the phone with Chris, and he said, why don't you do an orchestrated version of Celebration? It's simple. (laughs) I was like, oh, oh yeah, okay, cool, man, thanks. (laughs) 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 <laughs> so that's how that, that happened. But again, that's why collaboration is so important. And when you're writing and when I'm working with a uh, co-screenwriter, it's not just about that initial stage. It's about it. it's all the way through to the very end. Hi, Sean, nice to
0: meet you. Uh, I've already watched The Florida Project five times since Cannes Film Festival, and I really love this film. thank you. So I have a question about the film. Uh, I'm falling (laughs) in love with the ending. I mean, I love the ending. So uh, is this your initial plan to have an open open ending, or when you edit this film and there is an idea come up with your mind, Okay, I have to put this film with an open ending? And as a screenwriter, um, how to make an ending to become attractive and impressive to the audience? Thank mm.
1: you. Well, well, I I, I guess I kind of answered the first part, right? I knew it was gonna be that ending from the very beginning. I didn't know it was going to be as polarizing as it is, actually. Um, on Twitter, it's quite polarizing. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I also didn't care about that. You know, again, it was about You know, in allowing the audience to interpret it, and if they didn't want to interpret it, well, that's that's their fault. (laughs) That's their problem. Um, So, but um, I, I like open-ended endings. Uh, The reason why is because it gives something for the audience to talk about on the way to their car after (laughs) the movie. It gives them something. If you wrap it all up perfectly, you know, you give the audience nothing to think about and nothing to ponder. Um, I, there's. There's another way I could have ended this film. I could have had her crying in the back seat of the, the police vehicle. Mm. I and mean, would that have been a satisfying ending? I, I don't personally think so. But I know that some people would rather see something tied up in a law and order CSI bow, you know? So um, I, I, uh, I, I like endings that leave me thinking. And, and what was the second part?
0: How to make an ending
1: to become attractive oh. and impressive to the audience. Well that I don't know. I mean I'm just I'm, making, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just making I, again it's when I get to that stage of the edit it's really just about uh, or that that stage it's um it's just about making the ending I want to see and and hoping that uh, it has the, the same impact on audiences as it would would with me.
2: We're not gonna ask because we're probably quite short of time, mm-hmm. but it'd be interesting to know if, you, if your five different experiences of seeing this film gave you five different interpretations of the ending. I'm not gonna ask. <laughs> um, one final question, I think. Let's have a really good one. Yes, madam. Thank you.
0: I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about production and
2: shooting the Florida Project, as most of us have seen it here tonight. How long did it take? Did you take over an actual motel? And that wonderful ending we've all talked about, were you at Disneyland or was that green screened? How'd you get that shot? Yeah.
1: Okay. Thank you. Well, lots to talk about. But uh, basically, really quick, uh, 35 days of production. I needed a lot more. Uh, <laughs> I asked for 60, I got 35. Uh, when you're dealing with kids, you really just want a lot. You know, you want many days. And now, again, I was very lucky that these kids were so wonderful that we were always getting our takes within, You know, we were, we were getting the scene within, I would say, or shots that is. We were getting the shots within two or three takes. Um, uh, we did not take over the motel entirely. We we actually just rented out rooms and told them that we would um, never interfere with their business or or their customers. And they. This is something I've been doing with all of my films. Um, I don't want to ever truly own a, a running business because I want I want the energy that comes from, and I want I want that. That, that feeling that it, that life is going on. And um, you get that. Uh, you, being there on the set, you know, uh, you can ask uh, people who are the real clerks to participate, the real residents to participate. I, lo- I love that stuff. And, uh, and um, let's see. What else? Uh, we... Um, w- what are some of the other questions? <laughs> other, uh, the other... Yeah. Oh, the ending. Um, was that, that was shot on... Disney property uh, with, an, with an iPhone with an iPhone um, it was really that's really all I want to say about this. <laughs> but um, yeah no it was it was a overall you know I, I think everybody always says that you know uh, any filmmaker says it was a difficult shoot I've, I've, I've almost never heard of a filmmaker saying oh that was a breeze you know it's always it's always difficult it's always painful to a certain degree um, and, uh, and this one was no exception. Uh, you know, it was, uh, there were lots of things. Um, it, it was me also learning how to, cause I've worked with larger crews. I've worked with union crews on television, but never on my own personal, pro- I, I, I consider my features very personal passion projects. And so I, I, to work with a larger crew, you know, there, a lot more communication has to go, happen, and I had to learn how to communicate with people who have never worked with me before, so they didn't understand my style, and I had to, I was throwing so many curveballs. I mean, at, at, uh, you know, we will go off schedule, and that will affect every single department. You know, every single department has to say, wait a minute, I was all prepped to do this scene, now I'm doing this scene? And so, um, there was a little bit of, uh, at, the, at first, there was some fear. But what happened quickly is that everybody sort of got on board. And I had a lot of wonderful champions on the film. For example, my, my, my cinematographer, Alexis Abe, he's used to shooting like this. I mean, he's shot two features for Carlos Regatas. I'm sure they're not conventional. And so he he basically just just and, and he has that he has a, such a wonderful attitude and a way of speaking that he was just like, guys, we're doing something different here. What's the big deal? You know? Okay, it's gonna they're gonna be curveballs, but where it's gonna be different, it's not gonna be cookie cutter, and that's what, that's what matters in the end. And so um, eventually, I think everybody was on the same page. It was Harry at first, but everybody got on the same page. And, and ultimately, uh, we knew we were leaving. We had to get everything. We could never go back for pickups. And you know the main reason we couldn't go back for pickups? Because the kids were growing right in front of our eyes. So even one month later, it seemed like we were looking at, we were FaceTiming with uh, Brooklyn and saying we could never shoot you right now. You already look different. So um, knowing that everything was going to happen, have to happen in those 35 days, and we we're going to have to just leave with what we got, that was a way of just saying, you know, this is this is our one chance. Let's let's pull it together. Let's be positive, and let's just make something we're all proud of. Um, Sean, we have to let you go, but just before we do, you talked um,
2: about the kind of need to decompress between films to kind of mm. take a, a, soak up the world around mm. you. I think mm. you said, kind of in the in the pause between. Presumably, you're doing that now. Do you have any sense of where you're going to hit next? Uh,
1: no, no, no. I it, there are a few ideas, and there were a few. They're not even scripts. They were just, uh, if anything, treatments, one page treatments that are sitting on the back burner. And so, we're we're entertaining those. But um, we're hope hope to be getting another uh, grant from Center Reach mm-hmm. to allow us to start exploring, and uh, but I think this is this also this film, um, I really do want it to have an impact in the states. You know, I'm I'm, I'm meaning that I there has to be and and to. How this is gonna play out, I'm still unsure because we're exploring options, but we do want a social outreach campaign that helps, you know, that not only brings awareness to the issue of the hidden homeless, but it also um, directly uh, helps uh, the agencies that we worked with because they were so giving to us and we wanna make sure that they are given something back. And so far, the film has been helping them, but on a small level, we want this agency in particular um, that we even shot the caseworker scene at um, the Community Hope Center, which is basically Kissimmee's and uh, Osceola County's housing authority. That's see that they don't have the infrastructure there to actually have their own housing authority in the government, so they outsource it to a faith-based uh, nonprofit, and and they are trying their best to uh, to to develop a complex of affordable housing on their property, and um, we're we're trying to our best to try to figure out how this movie can help make that happen for them.
2: Well, that seems a perfect place to leave it. Um, mm-hmm. Thank you so much for, for talking to us tonight. I'd be a wonderful chance. <laughs>